Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of This Week in Hearing. I'm Brian Taylor. Our topic today is customizing prescriptive targets, part of the hearing aid fitting process that most of us are aware of. And uh, our guest today is Dr. Lindsay Jorgensen. Uh, Dr. Jorgensen is an associate professor, clinical director, and department chair at the University of South Dakota. Welcome, Lindsay. Well, thank you, Brian, for having me here. I'm excited to talk about Real Air because, you know, it's one of my... uh, stomping blocks that, that I wish that we would all talk more about. So thanks so much for having me. Yeah, no, it's great to have another authority uh, on this topic. And uh, before we dive in, I thought um, uh, you're at the University of South Dakota, uh, kind of an interesting place tucked away between uh, North Dakota and Nebraska. Could you tell us a little bit about what brought you to the University of South Dakota and uh, what you're doing there? Absolutely. So I will tell you that I'm not from this area. Um, I love it here. I love the people now that I've lived here. But really, the reason I came is because I really wanted to continue research in hearing aids and adults and how we can best um, help our adult patients and some peds too. But really, I'm interested in adults and using hearing aid technology. And I love that research, but my research is really clinically focused. And I wanted to make sure that clinicians on day to day can really take anything that I find and apply it to their, you know, Monday morning. And so the University of South Dakota really allows me to teach and do research and do clinic. And that's something that's pretty unique in, uh, in most academics. Yeah. And that's a real trifecta. Uh those three things. That's great. Uh, in fact, and we'll maybe we'll dive in a little bit later on. I know just in the last month or so, you were one of the uh, authors in the 20Q on uh, clinical standards, which is kind of a little bit of what we'll talk about today. Uh, yeah, but I thought we great. You know, those base standards, I think, are really important. We can always have these, you know, high shooting ideas of what we should do, but kind of what is our base? I'm really glad we're talking about that as well. Yeah, and that's really what in alignment with what I wanted to have a conversation with you today about. Uh, I thought we could start by getting into some of, you know, it's been more than 40 years since prescriptive uh, targets uh, came to in, into clinics. Uh, so maybe you could re- remind our, our viewers uh, what it means to fit somebody prescriptively. So one of those original prescriptive formulas was way back in the 1940s. Um, It's also known as like the half gain rule by Lieberger. Barger? Lieberger. Lieberger, I think. Lieberger, I think you're right. He's calling (laughs) Sai. Luckily, he probably is not around to correct me. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It was proposed that that half the amount of hearing loss at each frequency would be a good amount to gain and ensure a hearing aid user had good audibility and work on that prescriptive methods languished until probably the mid-1980s. I'm going to chime in here and say we had a couple pretty rough years where um, the um, MedResco report came out and that said that we really should just fit everyone with the exact same hearing aid. Well, that doesn't really work well for us now, does it? Can you imagine fitting the same hearing aid on every single one of your patients with the same prescription? Anyway, doesn't really make sense. Doesn't make a ton of sense. So, and research confirmed that really frequency specific programming really improves speech intelligibility. And really we should be looking at that. that. So we still do use kind of a method of that, you know, kind of the half third gain rule somewhere around there, taking into account upward spread of masking and those low frequency uh, inputs. But today's prescriptive methods are kind of a foundation of linear methods. And the two most common ones that, you know, we all know are NAL and DSL. 
NAL aims to make speech intelligible with an overall comfort soft sound, sound soft, moderate sound, sound moderate, and loud sound, sound loud. While DSL's philosophy is really based upon audibility and comfort is, you know, without having loud sounds be too loud, but really, you know, they're much more concerned with audibility and making sure that every single one of those sounds is audible. These two methods prescri prescribe specific amount of gain based upon hearing thresholds and uncomfortable levels, age, gender, hearing aid experience, language, uh, you know, and compressor speed. But basically there's a mathematical basis for each of those. So I will say that on, I am gonna pause and say that these are both averages, right? So both NAL and DSL are averages. And there are reasons to choose one or the other, but by definition, average means that there's going to be some people that want more and some people that want less. And while fitting to target, I would say is incredibly important. We should not be driven solely by these targets. And I know we're going to get more into this, but mm -hmm. um, fitting to a prescription, in my opinion, is fitting to audibility. And then we adjust it based upon the patient's needs, but we have to have a starting place. And really that's where those prescriptions allow us to go. Right. It's a good starting point. I think most people would agree. So what's really interesting to me, Lindsay, is that when we talk about prescriptive formulas, it's kind of a two-step process in the sense that you have to have the person's uh, hearing thresholds and you take those thresholds and they enter them into the software. And that gives you the fitting software, the manufacturer, the fitting or the software, the probe mic system, I guess. Uh, and then that gives you uh, the, these prescriptive targets. So I think of it kind of as a two-step formula. And you know, everybody does 100% of audiologists and, and fitters out there are, are doing the first part of that. They're collecting auditory thresholds, entering them into fitting software, getting a gain target, output target. Uh, but then if you read the surveys over the years, about maybe 40% of people are doing the second half, which is verifying sort of the goodness of the fit with their real ear system that they've actually hit those targets. Um, so maybe if you could talk a little bit about why only half of, uh, of hearing aid fitters out there are doing uh, the second half of the prescriptive procedure? You know, it's, it's a good question and something that I've spent a good chunk of my career trying to figure out, to be honest, and I'm trying different methods of, well, maybe it's, you know, that, that people aren't comfortable doing, doing this. And so I feel like this kind of opportunity and platform that you're giving us talking about it may change some people that, that this is not something they learned in school. So, you know, I'm, I'm nervous. There are opportunities at our professional organization meetings that will give hands-on experience. I'm going to put a small plug at AAA. We will have a um, hands-on lab in the conference or in the expo hall where you can come and we will actually have hands-on and say, what can I teach you? There is also a learning lab that I give on advanced features, but that hands-on, if you just want just to dabble in it and just to ask basic questions, no judgments, I will say that that may account for some of them. Now, while I, you do say 40%, that's also self-report. So I have kind of asked some of my hearing aid manufacturers, like outside sales, and they say it's probably more like 25%. So I'd love to say it's 40 I'm trying to be optimistic, I guess, but I, I, I tend to agree with you. I think it's uh, the number is probably a little bit lower than that. So some of the other reasons that I have heard people say is that the equipment is expensive. And I'm not going to say that, you know, a several thousand dollar piece of equipment 
isn't expensive because it definitely is. But there are data to suggest that you will make that up fairly quickly. Okay. So, you know, we, I will find that my return rate is pretty low, you know, Mm -hmm. and, and I, and I attribute part of that to that. I'm providing these people that the, um, the audibility that they mean. Second is that, um, you know, my number of follow-ups is definitely lower than most people. People who are fit to target, I have found don't need as many adjustments. And so if they don't come as often, then from a private practice perspective, which on a side note, we actually run a private practice here out of our clinic mm-hmm. here on campus. Um, so from a private practice perspective, if I don't have a patient taking a follow-up appointment, then that's another time that I can use for a hearing test to sell another set of hearing aids. So, nice. I mean, I guess the other two things that people say is that they believe patient report. And then also manufacturers, well, they're doing it for me. Why do I need to verify? So I kind of want to address those two Mm -hmm. a little bit separately. And first is that manufacturers say their fitting is based on a prescriptive formula. So why would I need to verify it? The manufacturer told me that it's NAL or DSL. Well, study after study, obviously, we all know, suggests that realier responses were different significantly from the audiometric real ear formulas that were put into the manu- put in the software. This is diff- this has also been proven not just for, you know, um, average speech but for loud sounds and soft sounds and it varies depending upon frequency and you know there's also been data to suggest that different audiograms that maybe if I put in an average audiogram it would work but other audiograms it wouldn't and it really just doesn't hold true. Remembering right. that the more hearing loss a person has the more dynamic reduced dynamic range they have. So that could really run into problems. And at the end of the day, the only thing we have control over that improves hearing with hearing aids is ensuring audibility. And the only way we can measure audibility is through the output of the actual hearing aids on that person in the patient's ear. Right, right. So um, without audibility, a lot of other things, uh, so many things stem from effective audibility that it's kind of a no-brainer. One thing I wanted to kind of touch on, maybe in a little bit more detail, um, and it gets to your point about these differences across manufacturers, um, I hear a lot of complaints from clinicians, uh, complaints that their patients maybe share with them that when they try to fit them to target, the patients say that the hearing aids sound too sharp, too tinny. Audiologists sometimes say that the, the, the formula is too hot. I'm not really sure exactly what that means, uh, but maybe you could speak to why that happens, uh, what what that really means, uh, maybe how do you counsel? Somebody does say those things about their hearing aids being too sharp or too tinny when they match a target. You know, that's really hard because, you know, most of us think like our patients will know, right? My patients know when things are loud or too loud or too soft. And, and many of our patients have slowly lost their hearing over time. And so they don't really remember what normal hearing was like. So I did a study a few years ago, actually looking to see what people remember of what their hearing was like when they were 20. So I took a whole bunch of older people and said, hey, when you were in a bar out of a scale of one to 10, how well did you hear? And when you were in a restaurant on a scale of one to 10, not how they heard today, but how they heard when they were 20. Mm-hmm. So, and then I took a whole bunch of 20 year olds and gave them the same questions. And I, you know, it's really interesting that in general, the 20 year olds were pretty honest, right? 
I don't, I hear about a, you know, five out of 10 when I'm in a, when I'm in a bar, I hear three out of 10 and I have to use visual cues 20. But then the, the older people were like, I heard everything when I was 20. So people's (laughs) historical memory is just not good. And, and so part of it, I will say is that setting those expectations and most people, patients with that come into my clinic have a really long standing hearing loss, meaning their brains just aren't used to it. And their brain is really used to that quieter world. This is sometimes where it's important that clinicians are not a technician, right? So if a new hearing aid user is, is at, you know, and we fit them to hundred percent of NAL, NL2 targets, and they, some people are going to say that that's okay. And I think this is where that kind of, you know, EIQ, that emotional IQ that we're all Mm -hmm. pretty good at really comes Mm -hmm. into play. How hard can you push that person? Right. And, and I'm, you know, I, I would say, you know, the patient that's, that's sitting there with the tears streaming down their face and going, it's okay. Right. Like (laughs) I'm going to turn them down Mm -hmm. and then maybe on their follow-up, put them up to, to target, but actually starting where target is you know, and, and I will always say that my job is 50% hearing aids, 50% like marital counseling, but you know, this is the time when the audiologist needs to provide counseling and you really need to be able to read your patient to know, you know, do I, do I push the patient or not, you know, but knowing that I'm, I'm hitting the target at this point and then turning them down either by percentage or by number, depending upon what manufacturer you're using and turning them down and saying, is this an okay place to start? Right. You know, and really giving them the remembering that this is just a starting place, but you're right. And for some patients, it is hot and tinny right. and annoying, but you know, knowing how hard to push that patient, um, I will make a plug here and also say average RECDs are often mm-hmm. used. Mm-hmm. Remembering that, you know, if you have a, a, a little person, their ear canal may be much smaller. I, I'm going to make a, make a comment on RECD saying my husband is six foot three, about 240, big broad shoulders, former military man. So kind of get that picture in your head. He has teeny, mm-hmm. tiny, teeny, 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 tiny ear canals. And I use him as a great example of like, we really should measure real ear to coupler difference. Because if you were to right. put an average adult white male hearing law or um, ear canal on him, it is going to be much too hot for him. Right. That's interesting. So I think what you're just to kind of uh, paraphrase what you just said, it's really about uh, using good clinical judgment. Yeah. Uh, the target is a starting point. I do know that people tend to train around where they start or to not train or keep the volume yeah. uh, around where they start, which is an important thing to note. So I've... Um, maybe not turn it down too much, but I get what you're saying about um, you got to take into consideration what the patient might be uh, telling you. Um, Anyway, uh, what I wanted, I meant you mentioned this before. We talked a little bit about it very briefly. Um, Every manufacturer, and I don't know where this comes from. It's kind of interesting to me. And I have to say, you know, even as somebody that represents a manufacturer, my day job is with Signia. Uh, As a clinician, I find this to be a little bit puzzling Every manufacturer has their own first fit and with, and they uh, invariably are underfitting, especially for soft sounds that are high frequency. I think it changes a little bit as you turn up the, as the sound gets louder. But what's interesting is they're all underfitting for the most part in the highs and they all have their own name, which makes it 
they have their own jargon, they call it something, you know, and I know that everybody has to market, there's a purpose for that. But if you can maybe speak to uh, how these first fit targets differ from the real, I'll call it in quotation marks, NAL or DSL. You know, uh, we don't actually know what it is. And I'll just be honest, we don't know what it is. That's the definition of proprietary. They're not going to tell us. Trust me, I've tried. I've asked, what's it based on? And then they'll say, oh, it's based on, you know, a verified target. I'm like, okay, but it's not where it is. And and I think that at the end of the day, and manufacturers are in it for their in it for the money. And, and I'm not meaning to say that that's a bad thing because we all have to make money, but their stockholders are who they are responsible to. And that that's the reality of, of any job, right? Like I'm not here just to, you know, I need to, I need to make a paycheck. Right. I, although I love what I do. I'm not going to say that I don't, but you know, I, I think that we just need to keep that in mind that one of their jobs is to make patients happy because patients that are happy keep their hearing aids. Yeah. Well, I think what you're getting to, and I, I it's a valid oh, yeah. point. I think that manufacturers um, have a different um, motivation maybe than the fitter. I think for the manufacturer, it's about bringing a product to market that's quality, that's consistently good. And then somebody on the other end of that has to be able to tweak it or fine tune it, customize it to the individual. Those Absolutely. things kind of work in glove. And, and um, they, they do expect us to tweak it. I mean, that's why they give us the software. And then they also expect the patient to be able to tweak it maybe a little bit, but not nearly what we can do. And so this is what makes us audiologists. Really, at the end of the day, I will say that we need to be optimizing for our patients because that's what they expect. Mm -hmm. They've told me a problem. And I think that this is, um, you know, I get asked um, and and I'm assuming we'll get to it at the end about kind of us versus over the counter. Mm -hmm. But a patient that comes to me often does not come for a device. They're coming for a solution. How we get to that solution, they're happy in general, but patients don't come to me saying, I want this many, most of them, some of them do. I want this manufacturer and this product. And most of them say to me, what product can help me get to the solution of communication competence? Yeah. I think that, um, that personalization is what we're going to try and do. Right. Uh, Like I said, I think the manufacturer's role is to furnish a high quality device and it's really up to the clinician then to provide a well-fitted solution. Maybe that's a good way to. Absolutely. And I will tell you, you know, our clinic protocol, which I'm willing to share with anybody, our our clinic protocol. But Mm -hmm. one of the things that we do is when we get a hearing aid, we actually run the full ANSI specs on it and compare it to what the manufacturer turned into the FDA. Because at the end of the day, what the manufacturer turned into the FDA is a quality high product. You know, Mm -hmm. it is so much better than the things that currently can be purchased as a PSAP. Like, I, I mean, really the products that we're getting have the ability to really help majority of our patients. But that manufacturer first fit, I really think of as a first fit. It is a place to start. It's a place to start. <laughs> well, and, and the other thing that I've, I've said is... Um... Imagine if you lived in a world where the manufacturer sent the hearing aid to you and it was just completely turned off without any first fit at all from the manufacturer's perspective, because so many, unfortunately, so many clinicians cut corners. uh, Most of those hearing aids would come back 
and they would say the hearing aid is dead. It's not working. Um, so manufacturing is a little bit of a bind. You have to have something, you have to have it somewhere in the ballpark. And I guess that's what the first fit gets you. Yeah. Um, and then it's up to the audiologist or the, the, the hearing aid professional to tweak it. So it's optimized to your point. I mean, I think that that the manufacturer is actually just trying to make your job easier, right? Like they could send it to you full on and then say, good luck, or they could send it to you, like you said, dead and say, good luck. But right. I really think of that first fit as here, let me at least like law ball you something to hit from. Yeah, so just in case you're, you're not- kind of in a general area. So it's not quite as much work for you. Right. And then it's ultimately up to the audiologist to get it right at the end. Um, well, we mentioned the first fit and every manufacturer has their own first fit. They have a different name for it. It's usually, you know, fairly below the now target. I also notice that most manufacturers have their own version of the now. When you go into the software, it looks like it might be the true or the real now. But I know on a, based on a couple of studies over the years, it's even though it says it is the now in the software, it may not be. So could you maybe speak to that? Well, I mean, and so the first thing I want to say is know what your manufacturer is doing, right? So for some manufacturers, if you change it to like first or to NAL or to DSL or or those things from the manufacturer proprietary, it's worth noting if that actually will disable some of the other features that the manufacturer has activated. So that's going to be my first caution Mm -hmm. before just going away from the manufacturer first fit proprietary name to, you know, NAL or DSL or, or whatever one you choose, just know if that is deactivating some of the internal features. So I will tell you my default is to leave it to the manufacturer or proprietary, and then just adjust from there to the target I want. But, you know, study after study, like, I mean, just Valente in 2018, Mueller, I mean, there's been study after study that has shown that, that real world performance, you know, that, that it just doesn't, doesn't meet the true function of that, of that NAL target. And I will tell you that, that the, the Valente article, um, so it's Valente and Christy Oding and Brock Meyer and Smith and Caligari, I think. Um, but they reported that like nearly eight, I think it's around 80% of patients actually preferred programmed versus first fit. Probably because they could hear things better. Because they could actually hear things, right? So we're verified that things were audible to them. Surprise, they can actually do better. So, you know, I think that (coughs) although patients initially may kind of say, gosh, this is too loud. And then I use my emotional IQ and I say, is this an okay place to start? And then I explain to them why most of my patients do walk out the door at Target. Mm-hmm. But with the knowledge that I am willing to move away from that, just go try it for a couple of weeks. And the reason, you know, I, I will say is that, you know, if you had a patient that had to walk to work every day and you gave them a bike, they're going to think the bike is the greatest thing that's ever been invented, but they don't mm-hmm. know that there's a car. So they may think, oh my gosh, this is too much, but let them try it out. But also, like I said, know that some of your patients, you have to back off and work your way up to that. Right. So I guess I don't really know, right? If you if you had a million dollars to invest in R&D, <laughs> I mean, don't get me wrong, but at the end of the day, they're still providing us a very quality product. Right. But that NAL and DSL is still going to be a tweak on what is the NAL because it's not in your patient's ear. 
Uh, and it's what, 30 or 40, maybe 50 years of science that shows that when you hit those targets, things fall pretty nicely into place. Um, but you, you bring up a really interesting point about um, sticking with the manufacturer's first fit and then just matching the target from there. Uh, you know, most manufacturers I know have some type of signature feature or proprietary features that work well together in combination. And you certainly don't want to turn those things off. Um, but at the same time, you want to make sure that things are loud enough or audible so people can actually hear the benefits of those features when they're working. Um, you know. yeah, I mean, our patients complain about speech and noise. And if it's not audible, your directional microphones are not going to help. Right. So you got all these other features that really aren't even being driven because sounds aren't audible. Anyway, I think it would be interesting for our, our, for our um, viewers to hear what your clinical protocol is. So, um, sure. so if you want uh, if you to share. Absolutely. We have it written out. Um, I'm willing to email it to anyone, partly because we have students. So I'm going to mm -hmm. pause and say that we do run our clinic as a private practice. And mm -hmm. our private practice does require that we make a certain amount of money um, to pay salaries. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it, it, it really is that. And, and our students learn about billing and coding and things like that. So mm -hmm. one of the things that we do is when a hearing aid comes in, um, we run a full ANSI spec on them. And then we um, run directional microphones because the number one thing that our patients complain of is hearing in noise. And the only way that currently that we've really shown to improve speech and noise is directional microphones. Now, I'm not saying there aren't other things that help, you know, digital noise reduction, right. but purely in and of itself, D-mics are the only thing that we have really shown. Like I said, D-mics might help with our um, digital noise reduction might help with reducing effort and all those things. But currently we don't really have a measure, a true measure of effort. So I think, um, you know, so we check, we check ANSI specs, compare it to the spec sheet mm -hmm. that was provided to the FDA about that hearing aid. And then um, we run D mics. So that's kind of on the front end. We also, so what do you mean? I, I just wanted to make sure that we're all on the same page. When you say run D mics, you're talking about some sort of a measurement in the test box. Yeah. Sorry. We, working. we run, we run a, a test box measure. So we first fit the hearing aid. So we connect it then. Mm -hmm. um, I will say that some manufacturers make it quite easy to run an ANSI spec and some make it a little bit more difficult. Some have a button that you can click to say, I'm going to run, you know, my, my full on gain measurement. And mm -hmm. others, um, it, it is a little bit more difficult um, looking at some equivalent test function, those things. Um, we then first fit. And our reason of doing that is, I mean, we've all had the, the hearing aid that you just can't connect to, to the programmers and the patients sitting there. So part of mm -hmm. our other reason is to do that. Right. And then the other part that we do is um, we, so then we run directional microphones. So we force the hearing aids into directional microphones. Um, so we're not testing adaptive directional. We're not testing whether the hearing aid will switch. We're really just truly testing to see if we see a um, separation of a the speech from the noise in a front to side measurement. Right. That's interesting. If I could, do you see differences across manufacturing? It's sometimes you have to drive or put more louder, more intense sound into some hearing aids to get them into directional mode. That's kind so that's of a really, thing. really good question. And so one of the reasons we force the hearing aids into directional, usually mm -hmm. by putting it in some kind of speech and noise, speech and restaurant, 
because mm -hmm. many, many manufacturers or every manufacturer has their own proprietary setting mm -hmm. on how their hearing aid will go into directional microphones. Exactly. So, I find that interesting. Yeah. And it, it, it is interesting. So one of the reasons that we have chosen to do that is that then it would be a different protocol for every manufacturer. Mm -hmm where I need zero dB signal to noise ratio with this input, or I need a plus five. Um, and so we have found that just forcing that hearing aid into directional gives us a much more consistent protocol. Mm -hmm. And so that's why we, we do that because using a, a, an auto switch, right, where you let it run until it switches into directional was actually really difficult because we use such a variety of manufacturers here. Right. Yeah, no, I get that. So can maybe that's, that's really a good that you shared that. Any other parts of your protocol that you'd like to share with our viewers? Um, so I think that, you know, then the patient comes and we do, we do a real ear to coupler difference and we mm -hmm. save that in the patient's file so that then we don't have to run it every time. Um, so I'm going to talk for a minute about an adult fitting and then how we do a child fitting a little bit differently. Um, okay. So an adult, we do a 65, we do a soft, a moderate and a loud. So we do a 65, 55, 75, um, mm -hmm. 65, 50, 80 is fine. And then we always run an MPO in our clinic. We don't typically measure UCLs or LDLs in the booth. So we recognize that what is in the software is not the patient specific. And so what I will say, one of the things we do when we run UCL or MPO of the hearing aid is we actually look at the patient because <laughs> many, most manufacturers um, actually will take that MPO and have it really low. So mm -hmm. one of the things that I always you know, want to do is I jack up the MPO to give me a little bit more headroom, a little bit less right. compression, right. but I want to make sure it's not too much for the patient. And I promise you, if a patient is near their UCLs, they give you a face. And so I always, I always say to the students and I myself don't look at the screen when I'm running that MPO or that 90 dB output, I'm looking for the face. <laughs> yeah. um, and then we teach the patient. I will say that we then um, take the hearing aids off the patient and run a, a multi-curve mm -hmm. um, so that then we have in our computer, our, our electronic medical record, how the hearing aid is functioning at a soft, moderate and loud in our test box. Right. We use that for the future, not mm -hmm. for, not for today. So what I do is I have that hearing aid at, at you know, hundred percent target or whatever, a three or a four or whatever manufacturer you're using, fit mm -hmm. it to target, ask the pay, you know, stop my, I'm, I'm happy with where I am within about five DB of my target if possible. Mm -hmm. And then um, pause and then ask the patient how they're doing, take it down however I need to. And then run um, the hearing aid in the test box. Mm -hmm. um, that's our protocol for for how we fit a typical sort of hearing aid. A, yeah, quality control. And so, a couple of interesting points you made that um, I don't know a lot of clinics that do an RECD on adults, but I can see the value of that when you're individualizing and you have that in their sort of in their chart as a blueprint of uh, you know what how the, how it's individualized to the person. Well, if you run spirit. it once, especially on adults, you don't need to run it again. Yeah, right. So that you have it there. There's uh, I can quite a bit of data also... that says that the left and the right are the same on most adults. So as long as you run one, you should be okay. So with right. a kid, I will say that our protocol is that when we do the audio, we run RECD on that day. And that's because in a child, I tend to pre-fit in the test box mm -hmm. using the patient-specific RECD. 
because right. sometimes when a kid comes in, they're in full meltdown mode and they're <laughs> right. just yeah. not going to let you do it on the yeah. ear. So I'd like to have at least like that starting point, right? you know, yeah. a little bit closer to their targets. Um, I think anyone that's fitted kids knows what you're talking about. <laughs> I also yeah. have two. So I have a two-year-old and a six-year-old <laughs> and you never know what kind of mood, especially my two-year-old is going to be in. Yeah, no, no doubt about it. But it's, uh, I can see how an RECD would be helpful on adults um, with teleaudiology too. You could fit them remotely if you had to, if you had that. Absolutely. You know, and, and so, I, you know, the data suggests that, that if you don't run RECD on adults, you're probably going to be okay using average about 80% of the time. Right. But if you have it, then you got, you use less than that variability even more. The other thing that you said that's interesting was uh, you focus on output. You know, we talked a lot about gain curves, but uh, you mentioned, and I know there was an article published a few months ago, I think it was in the hearing review showing that most manufacturers are well under uh, probably the prescribed output of any given patient that we are underfitting our patients for loud sounds. Um, Do you want to speak a little bit more about that? Sure. I mean, for me, it's actually about if, if we're not fitting the loud sounds, you're actually hyper compressing your signal. Yeah. You're and that's actually through. why I really fit to moderate, soft and loud mm-hmm. um, <laughs> because loud should be loud, not uncomfortable. Um, I call it act, right? Audible, comfortable and tolerable. Mm-hmm. And that's the way the students kind of hear or learn it is, is I want you to act audible, comfortable and tolerable. That's great. Because yeah. Loud sounds are loud. Yeah, they're and they are. And that's okay, but if you underfit those loud sounds, you're really going to end up hyper compressing that hearing aid. And I will tell you, my first lecture in in hearing aids one is basically why hearing aids ruin speech. Because <laughs> at the end of the day, we're taking all of these sounds that occur in in English and squishing them into a smaller area. That's the function of a hearing aid. We need right. to make the, the sounds audible, but unfortunately, remember, because of recruitment, our top end doesn't go anywhere. Right. So if you aren't utilizing that patient's entire dynamic range, you're going to end up compressing speech more than they need. Right. And they already have a narrow dynamic range to begin with, and now you're making it even worse if you don't fit to the entire soundscape. Absolutely. Utilize the patient's entire dynamic range if you can, because at the end of the day, that's going to reduce or improve intelligibility. Right. What's interesting also here, what we're talking about is these things about hitting a target. These can't be duplicated by over-the-counter devices. It takes a, it takes a professional to, to uh, tailor the response to the individual. Uh, Absolutely. Could you speak a little bit, maybe as we wind things up here, Lindsay, around, you know, what's your take on uh, OTC, how can, uh, how can hearing care professionals differentiate themselves in a world where a person could buy something and then fit themselves? So I think that's a really, really good question. And, and I think that, that as I have had more experience with what, a device that, that will be an over-the-counter hearing aid at, at some point, the more I am confident in my ability to provide services as an audiologist. Mm-hmm. The process of teaching patients right. and really having that connection um, mm-hmm. is what separates us in general, that process of verification. So, right. you know, I, I really am what more than the device. And I will tell you that we do bundle here, but we itemize bundle. And so the hearing aid costs mm-hmm. this much and I am this much. Um, I'm willing to share mm-hmm. that with other people, not the prices. 
but actually how we set that up. But Mm -hmm. I myself am the same price across all of our levels of technology. It's likely that we here will provide an over-the-counter type device at a much reduced cost, Mm -hmm. but I'm going to sell that as you know, you're going to get this device and, you know, I'm here as a general support to you, but reality is there's not much I can do with this hearing aid. You know, we, we've kind right, of, kind of a size fits all. Yeah. And we kind of tossed around these ideas of kind of how we do it. And, you know, it is true that many of these over-the-counter products are going to do kind of um, what, what will be like an in situ audiogram. The patient mm-hmm. hears the beeps through, through the hearing aid. And then it, may either put them into one of four, several profiles or it may, um, you know, actually kind of do what is a semi a first fit. Right. But, you know, hopefully I will say that audiologists will see an OTC as an opportunity to maybe tap the market of those people that aren't getting our services already. And that's kind of, I don't know if you remember, there was the scale, there was the article by Palmer and Hurley and Solidar and maybe one or two other people quite a few years mm-hmm. ago. Yeah, scale of one to 10, how bad is your hearing? And mm-hmm. they use that to determine how much counseling you had to provide to people to then, you know, would they purchase a hearing aid? And I really think that this is going to tap those people that were on the bottom end of that. Once again, people don't see me for a device. People see me for a solution. Yeah, I know. That's a great point. Um, and that article, by the way, I think it was published in JAAA in tw- 2009. Mm-hmm. I know it well because it's a really practical article that I think every clinician should know about. Now, I know before we started recording, you had a big, thick book there that uh, you were, um, I think, maybe propping your computer up propping on. Propping my computer up well, on. You want to share that book? I think it's, it's uh, sure. it has I'm a lot of useful information. Sure, I'm going to take my computer down here so you can all see. I keep this on my desk, the modern <laughs> hearing aid essentials. Um, you know, I will say that, that this is one of my favorite books. Um, my other favorite book is the compression for clinicians. Um, you know, those are kind of the, the several books. Well, since we're sharing textbooks, I wanted to share one with you that I, I don't know. It's this one. I don't know. This goes back to the eighties. It kind of dates <laughs> me. Um, this is a book on when we talk about customization, I think of customizing, uh, this is, uh, Studebaker and Hotchberg. Oh, that's a great book. I have that one over in my in my stack as well. But when I think about customization, I think about customizing the physical fit and then customizing the gain and the output. And there's All right, one more that I'm going to show is the speech oh, mapping and probe mic book. So now, um, <laughs> you know, it's that's another great one as well. So yeah, so now that we, uh, we we've exchanged uh, library books, we can uh, <laughs> we can end our session, Lindsay. Anyway, any final words for uh, our audience? You know, I think that if your fear is that it costs too much, remember that it that in you have to think in the long term, setting yourself apart. If you're just trusting a manufacturer, you know, then what set what makes you an audiologist? Remembering that real ear is a starting point, but it really does depend upon you really meeting that patient where they are. And and some people are going to want more and some people are going to want less, and that's okay. It's as long as you know what that hearing aid is doing in your patient's ear is what makes you a professional. Good, good to know. Well, uh, Lindsay, I can't thank you for your time. Uh, great to have you on This Week in Hearing. I uh, hope to catch up with you again uh, in the near future. Thank you so much for having me. It's been great talking to you. Yeah, likewise. So long. Bye. Bye.